interesting to me. I've said this so often, forgive me, I'm embarrassed at my repetitions at times, but Jesus was willing to become what he was not, and we're not willing to become what we are. Uh, the very moment we begin to defend our honor, we are immediately contradictory to the nature of Christ, who surrendered his honor for the honor of his Father. And remember again, whatever you surrender, God keeps for you. Whatever you keep, you lose. What is the word of Jim Elliot again? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Uh, very quickly, um, verse uh, 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. Now, quickly, I want to cite this weaker vessel. Again, it's a matter of order, not a matter of ability. I've often thought that uh, Martina Navratilova would have done better playing tennis with men because she was more like one of them. I recognize there are always, uh, how you say, exceptions. Uh, to every circumstance, but the meaning of the word weaker here is dubious or unsettled in opinion. That's the meaning of the Greek word. Unsettled in opinion. Is there a verse that manifests that? Come with me, please, to 1 Timothy 2. <laughs> you know, uh, a lot of uh, truisms, as they're called, become truisms because they're true. Uh, well, I better stay away from that. All right. Uh, no, let me say it since I'm here, all right? There are a lot of ethnic jokes that float around, and I realize that some of them can be hurtful and can be very unjust, but the fact of the matter is that most of those things arise out of some kind of truism, some kind of truth. Um, uh, the Irish have always had the reputation for having wild tempers. Um, the uh, uh, Jews have always had a reputation for being able to make money. Um, I, I'm losing now. There's always a list of them, and I don't draw them all back right now. But all of those give rise to what we call truisms. And have you ever heard the truism, it's the privilege of a woman to change her mind? <laughs> See there? <laughs> Dubious, unsettled in opinion. That's the meaning of the Greek word. And so allow, allow us, please, to look at 1 Timothy 2. Um, in like manner also, verse 9, I'm sorry. In like, in like manner also women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation. Same thing Peter's saying. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let women learn in silence with all submission. Now the word silence here is the different Greek word than you have in the Corinthian epistle when Paul said, I want them to be silent. In the Corinthian epistle it is don't say a word because he's applying a cure to a problem. Here there's a very different Greek word appearing and it means to be in quietness. Same idea you have in 1 Peter and chapter 3, to be in quietness. It addresses the spirit, not the deed. So verse 12, And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in quietness. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into the transgression. Now there's your key. The woman was deceived. As a principle, as a principle, 
deception is the first tool that the snake uses against womanhood. And I want to say with you, say to you in all candor that most of the heresies with which the church deals today were either started by or severely contributed to by women. The snake picks out the woman to make his first attack. You can see that in one, I'm sorry, in uh, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, it is the woman against whom he first makes his assault. Women leaving the natural use to the man, burned in their passions one toward another, likewise also the men. As soon as it begins to move through womanhood, it starts to move through manhood. I am convinced that this whole women's live movement that's afflicting the world today, and I mean that in all sincerity, is carrying us back not only to the system of fertility worship, and it's working concentrically with, uh, we call that thing where don't uh, harm the environmentalists, there you are. Uh, it's working uh, concentrically with environmentalism to carry us back to fertility worship. And I'm convinced that's where the world is headed. I know it, it looks bizarre now, but I want to tell you something, beloved, 15 years ago where we are now looked bizarre. Uh, incredible the things that are going on right now. It's absolutely, I, I was, Ted and I were talking about this a little, a little earlier uh, this morning, that we have lost all logic. There, there's no longer any logic in the decisions that are being made. It's absolutely unbelievable the, the sort of thing that's happening now. In any case, uh, this, this whole philosophy is moving us back to the situation which prevailed prior to the flood. And Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall also be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And in that time, the sons of God, fallen angels, saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took the wives of all that they chose. Peter addresses that in his second epistle. And so it's so very important. Coming back with me to Peter, please. No, no, I'm sorry. Go with me to Ephesians, uh, because I did not cite those passages that I wanted to while we were on time turning out. Um, it is so very important that we recognize divine order. And, and I cannot emphasize this too much. It's not a matter of ability. It's a matter of order. And I'm going to cite that before we close here very quickly to see how it relates to the Lord Jesus. All right, look, we're to Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm not going to labor these. I just want to cite them. The end result of being filled with the Spirit in verse 18 is in verse 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. To walk in the Spirit is to submit to one another. Now, again, not obey. The shepherding movement got into that. That was very unfortunate. It was a perversion of truth. But submitting yourselves one to another, <coughs> pardon me, in the fear of God, yielding to one another. Verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. The injunction for the husband is he is to love his wife even as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And again, if a husband will love his wife in that manner, he won't need to worry about her submitting to him. She's going to know full well that he has all of her best interests at heart. Uh, verse uh, 1 of chapter 6, children, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Here's divine order. Verse 4. Um, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training, nurture, and the admonition of the Lord. Verse 5. Servants, bond servants, literally. Be obedient to those who are your masters, just as Peter said. Now verse 9. Peter didn't mention this. It's here. And you masters, do the same things to them, give, uh, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So there's the whole economy. 
And then finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his night. Now, our time's up, so I want to take you quickly to 1 Corinthians 15. And let's look at this divine order as it relates to the Lord Jesus. <coughs> Sorry. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, now 21. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be make, made alive. All that are in Adam die, all that are in Christ are made alive. But each one is in, own or, in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Now notice we're talking about order. Each one in his own order. I realize this is chronological. He's talking about we're going to see... Um, um, cardinal order in a moment as opposed to uh, chronological order verse 24 then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death for he has put all things under his feet but when he says all things are put under him it is evident that he the Father who put all things under Christ is accepted in other words, the Father isn't under Christ. Now when all things are made subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to God, the Father, who put all things under him, that God may be all and in all. The self-emptying of the Lord Jesus declares that he will eternally be under the authority of the Father. There never will be a time when Jesus Christ will surrender that body that he has obtained in his humiliation and now in his glorification and lay it aside and go back into the bosom of the Father as the Son co-equal in authority. When Jesus came in the incarnation, he laid aside not his divine nature, for most surely he was God from the time he was conceived to the time that he ascended to the Father, he was God without any break in that in-between as some have suggested at the cross. But he laid aside, rather than his divinity, he laid aside his divine prerogatives. And by laying aside his divine prerogatives, he became subject to the Father. And there never, therefore, will be a time when Jesus Christ is not still in eternity subject to the Father, for God the Father is going to be all in and all. And he's spoken of here in contrast to God the Son. And the God the Son, therefore, is going to take that position of subjection uh, to the Father. If this is the case with the Son, that he has eternally, that's a staggering thing to me, laid aside that divine prerogative, and by the way, parenthetically, the reason he did so is because he loved the church. And if he ever surrendered that position, he loses the church. Not one jot or tittle of the law fails to all be fulfilled, and that's the law of the bondservant. If the bondservant came into the house without a wife, and in the course of serving, uh, not the bondservant, but I'm sorry, first of all, the servant, if in the course of serving the father of the household, the uh, master of the house, gave this servant, this slave, a wife, and the end of the sixth year came, and he can go free, uh, free in the seventh year, if he said, I want to take my wife with me, I'm going to leave, the master says, oh, no. If you'd have brought her with you when you came, you can have her when you go out, but you didn't bring her with you when you came. You got her while you were serving me. Therefore, she stays. And the servant, therefore, says, well, I love her. And I love you too. I'll tell you what I won't do. I won't leave. And so he takes his ear and takes him to the doorpost. And what are doorposts for? No, 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 come on. Hang doors. Who's the door? What's the identification? 
Yeah, you're going to the cross with him, you see. And he takes him to the doorpost and he pierces his ear through with an awl to the door and he serves him forever. And not one jot of the tittle of the law fails to all be put. That's what Jesus did. He came as a, being found in fashion as a servant. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God has highly exalted him and he gave him a wife while he was a servant. And therefore, he keeps that wife as long as he remains a servant. Remarkable. Most, no staggering is what it is. And so Jesus Christ has taken the position, if therefore he has done so, ought we also accept the same. Bloom or your planet. Comments or questions? Well, bless you all. I appreciate your coming. Let's pray. Uh, no, I didn't intend to get to that. No, that, that would get us into the second coming, and I, I didn't mean to transgress in that area. <laughs> Albeit I would like to. We just don't have time for it. Yes, the chronological order of, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 addresses itself ultimately to the second coming of Christ. The resurrection and uh, the final resurrection of the righteous and the second coming. But the cardinal order is Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead, but always cardinal order. Yes, the cardinal order is that Jesus Christ is always in subservience to the Father under his authority. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the message that it gives us. Thank you, our Father, for the hope that's set before us. And we know you do all things well. And we bless you and give you praise and thanksgiving. Amen. Yes, ma'am. That's what they said. Yes. They said they were going to observe her uh, for a couple of hours, but the doctor's comment was uh, he was reasonably sure that was her condition. And he said there's always that possibility that they're wrong, but he said he would rather take the appendix and it be all right than not take it and it be bad. Oh, yes, yes. So I got to find out where she is. Bless you. My daughter was just put in the hospital for an appendectomy, so when this is done, we'll be hastening on to the hospital, so might we pray for her <laughs> as we begin. Father, we're grateful for your faithful kindness towards us. 
we realize we're in your hands. We thank you, Father, that you keep us as the apple of your eye. And we pray your hand of healing and care on Karen now and your peace upon our mother. In the name of Jesus, our Father, we pray you'll give wisdom to those that would minister to her medically. And we ask you that you would simply breathe your breath and speak your word of healing and recovery. Thank you, Father, for the word we approach. And, and again, we confess our inadequacy toward us. And apart from the ministry of the person of the Holy Spirit, we have no understanding. And so we pray you'll give us anointing to hear and to speak. We submit the time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we had uh, discussed in our last class, <coughs> pardon me, from verse 11 onward, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And we had discussed this much in a previous class, and I did not want to labor unnecessarily, but simply to uh, remind ourselves that the fleshly lusts that war against the soul put the soul in the middle between the spirit, which would want to do the will of God, and the body of man uh, in which sin works, according to the Apostle Paul in chapters 6 and 7 of Romans, and therefore those appetites that come out of this body or out of the flesh would uh, war against the soul. That is to say, would want the soul to obey the deeds of the flesh, whereas the spirit is calling the soul to obey God. And so Paul says, abstain from those fleshly lusts, those things that provoke the body to do the deeds contrary to the will of God. Uh, keep a distance, in other words, between you and those things which would provoke unsavory appetites in us. And then verse 12, uh, we spent some considerable length of time with the phrase, the day of visitation. It's very important. It's translated in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the office of a bishop. That one word, visitation, translated the office of a bishop. And it would have the idea of one possessing a rightful authority uh, over a uh, government or peoples or whatever. It's used in Luke chapter 19 by the Lord Jesus in verse 44 regarding Israel, saying to them, You knew not the day of your visitation. That was with reference to his first coming. In this case, he's referring to his second coming. Glorify God in the day of visitation. That day when Jesus Christ comes to take the throne and the authority that's rightfully his. That's what's implied in the term visitation. We applied that to Acts chapter 3 verses 19 and 20. Peter is talking there about the times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord until he sends Jesus uh, for the re restoration of all things. The restoration of all things is the kingdom reign of the Lord Jesus during which time he will restore the physical earth to its uh, uh, prior or pre-fall condition. Uh, the term he uses prior to that, uh, that, the times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord, speak to those times of revival which the Lord is going to send to the church. Uh, and we, I think, tried to illustrate this from an interesting verse to me, anyhow, it is in Job when the Lord tells us the three reasons for why he sends rain on the earth. He says he sends it for mercy, he sends it for his land, or he sends it for judgment. I think that's a very interesting comment. And the same could be transferred to the believer. He sends the rain, the visitation of the Spirit of God. He sends it for mercy. He sends it for judgment. He sends it for his land. That is to say, for his church. We are the garden of God, you remember. I don't think I'm stretching an analogy too much to point that out. And so when Peter addresses 
the times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord. We've seen those throughout church history, the time of the Reformation, uh, what is called the Great Awakening in the days of John Wesley, Edwards, uh, Whitfield, and so forth. The Second Great, great Awakening in the days of uh, Charles Finney, uh, Billy Sunday, and so forth. Those are times of revival. Some of them are worldwide, some of them are localized. The Welsh Revival, for example, the results, the fruit of which uh, visited the whole world, the tentacles, if you would, of that went out to the whole world in the blessings of God. And so in this text we have before us in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, when he re addresses the day of visitation, he is anticipating the day when Jesus Christ will come and possess the rulership that is rightfully his. Now I threw that out rather quickly, and so is there anything I need to say to clarify it, or perhaps to elaborate on it? All right, and going on from there, and Peter is still pursuing this theme of these believers, in this case Jewish believers, who are finding themselves in the midst of persecution. And I would emphasize once again that these Christians are being persecuted for two reasons. First of all, because they're Christians, and secondly, because they're Jews. The, the very fact that they were Jews would bring them persecution wherever they were dispersed. But the fact that they were Jewish Christians put them in, in, in an even more difficult circumstance, for not only were they persecuted as Christians by the Gentiles, but they were persecuted by their unconverted Jewish brethren because they had embraced what was known then as this way. And so Peter is emphasizing the importance of their taking the attitude of the Lord Jesus, which is pointed to, for example, in verse 21, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. Some of you will have a different rendering in your translation. Uh, some Greek texts read differently. For example, for to us, I'm sorry, to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, I'm sorry, suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps, which is probably a more ac or a accurate rendering. And so Peter is saying, you're finding yourself in the world in the same position as was your Savior. Jesus said, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. If it persecuted me, it's going to persecute you. And so what is to be the attitude of the child of God in the midst of this persecution? I would say before I get into this that Americans probably have a greater difficulty with this whole thesis than any other peoples on the face of God's green earth. I know this is going to seem a very secular illustration, but if you'll permit me, please, reading an article uh, some number of weeks ago in the American Rifleman, uh, they were discussing the difference between European thinking about firearms and American thinking about firearms. And the whole idea of the article was that in Canada, for example, they are convinced that the government will look after us. In America, no American believes the government will look after us. Matter of fact, most Americans believe the governments are real <laughs> and so the the philosophy that we have in this country is anything or anyone who is in authority is subject to question. Now, put yourself in the place of these Christians, and they're finding themselves under the iron heel of a very pagan authority. Not only governmental, but the same thing was true spiritually, the way the Christian Jews were persecuted by their own Jewish brethren and the authorities that were then in power among the Jewish brethren and what they did to the disciples, what they wanted to do to the church. And Paul, of course, in his earliest days um, uh, was a good example of that. And so I think that what 
the attitudes that we take in this country make that even more difficult because we do not see government as our friend, we see it rather as our enemy. And this whole nation was begun under the thesis that government is an enemy. And if you don't control it, and if you are not a part of it, and if you are not that government yourself, then it's ultimately going to drag you into despair, which of course is, in my view anyhow, happening in this country. And so Peter is encouraging them with regard to the kind of attitude that they ought to take in these very adverse circumstances. And it's becoming more and more real to us in this country as it has to many Christians in other countries in uh, uh, generations past around the world. So in verse 13, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. And we discussed this in our lesson last week, but it's germane to where we're going this morning. Therefore submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Now you'll notice those two things, the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. Uh, we are commanded in the scripture to submit to the authorities that are over us. Now allow me once again to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance and make the distinction between submission and obedience. In Acts chapter 4, the disciples had been preaching in the name of Jesus. They were arrested for having done so. They were commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus. And the reply was, you judge yourself whether it's right to obey God or man. Now you notice the word obey. The issue was, who am I going to obey? They were bound to submit to the authorities, but they were uh, more supremely bound to obey God. So when the authorities command comes in conflict with the command of God, it goes without saying, I obey God. But what about the issue of submission? Can I submit and disobey at the same time a command that's ungodly from the government? I can indeed. The disciples took that position. The disciples said, we will not obey you. But in effect, they said, we will submit to you. Because they said, if you do this, we're going to flog you and imprison you. And they, in effect, said, go ahead and flog us then, imprison us then, but we are going to preach in this name. So they submitted to the authorities in that they did not incite a rebellion against the government. But they obeyed God. It is the illustration, I think I've shared with you here, that uh, uh, Dr. Uh, John R. Rice, a number of years ago offered in one of his books when he was dealing with this subject. He said, and recognizing this is an extreme, but in order to illustrate, if the, if the drunken husband says to his uh, redeemed wife, I want you to go with me tonight to the saloon and we're going to get drunk together, and she says to him, I am not going to do that, it would dishonor the Lord, and he says to her, if you don't do that, I will black your eye. She says to him, black my eye then, because I'm not going to do it. Now she will obey God, but submitted to him. Y'all follow that? Pleasant, uh, unpleasantness to say the least, but illustrates the point. And that's precisely what position uh, the Apostle Peter tells us that the believers uh, are to be in. Now, we spent some time, and I will not labor this unnecessarily now, hopefully, with this whole idea of the governments having been instituted by the Lord. We took us back to Genesis chapter 9. And verses 5 and 6, God said, Whosoever sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And at that point, God instituted the responsibility of government into the hands of man. Certainly that government was to follow the ethic that God had set down. As a parenthesis right here, this government in this country has survived because it was established on the Judo-Christian ethic. That's being abandoned now. We have entered in indeed to a post-Christian era 
And I believe that deterioration can only come as a result of that. I believe it was one of our founding fathers that said our system of government can only exist as it is uh, uh, in the hands of moral people. When it ceases to be in the hands of moral people, this system of government cannot survive. Now, the truth of that is very evident, is it not? Since you're voting a democracy and the majority rules, if the majority is morally upright, then, of course, righteousness will prevail. But when the majority is no longer morally upright, then righteousness will not prevail. That, as a sidelight to that, is why the Church of Jesus Christ is not a de democracy. Because we always prevail with carnal Christians rather than with spiritual Christians. And when carnal Christians are running things in a democracy, you're going to get a carnal result. And that's why the government of the Church of Jesus Christ is built under an eldership in a theocracy. And that's another subject, and I'll not uh, reach that right now. So Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, all of these emphasize the importance of being under the authority of government and being submitted to that government because God instituted it. And he says in Romans 13, he bears not the sword in vain. And we spent some time talking about the importance of capital punishment and cited Ecclesiastes chapter 8 because uh, judgment against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men are thoroughly set in them to do evil. Now, in this context, then, I think that's a profound statement, isn't it? As anything God says is, of course. I feel a bunny pat there, but I'm trying to resist. Verse 15. For this is the will of God that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Uh, don't take liberty, Paul said in Galatians 5.13, as an occasion to the flesh. So, in verse 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Now, that's basically the position of the believer in attitude toward this world. Honor all people. Uh, whatever breed they may come from, whatever social level they may come from, uh, you do to them as you would want them to do to you. We call that the golden rule. It came, of course, from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. Uh, have you ever heard, how many of you have ever heard of the silver rule? Some of you have. I know you have. You may have forgotten. The silver rule was birthed by a fellow named Confucius. <laughs> And the silver rule reads, don't do anything to anybody else you wouldn't want them to do to you. Now, what's the grand difference between those two? I can accomplish that sitting in my living room, you know. That puts no responsibility on me whatsoever. Just let the guy alone. Stay away from him. But Jesus requires something of me toward them. Do for them. Don't just avoid them, but do for them. And so honor all people. That would immediately settle the racial problems that exist in the world if everybody did that. And I'm not the idealist that says they will. Love the brotherhood. You have a unique and certain responsibility toward those that are in Christ Jesus. Paul said as much as this within you do good unto all men. Finish the verse. Especially to the household of faith, indeed. Fear God. Honor the king. Those two go together. Fear God. Honor the king. You first of all give your allegiance to the Lord, and then you give honor to the king, and your fear of the Lord is going to govern a right respect, right attitude, and right response to the king, whatever he does. 
Now from verse 18 on, he begins to give us this list, and I'm going to go through all of those very quickly, uh, just for the moment, but he started with verse 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. In verse 18, he said, servants, be submissive to your masters. In verse 1 of chapter 3, he said, wives, likewise, submit to your own husbands. And in verse 7, husbands, likewise, dwell with them with uh, understanding. And uh, then he concludes this context, and we'll not get that far today because it's going to raise too many other issues. He concludes this context with pointing out in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, etc. Now in the middle of this, he cites Jesus as the example. We've already seen verse 21. To this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, why is that so important? He's going to repeat basically the same thing at the end of chapter 3. So why is he putting this statement right here? Verse 23. I'm sorry, 22. Who committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. In other words, here was a totally innocent individual. Peter is not emphasizing so much, though he will speak to it, the vicarious suffering of Christ here as much as he is that he was the innocent being wrongly dealt with, unjustly dealt with by an unjust world. And how did Jesus respond to being unjustly dealt with by an unjust world? Verse 23, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. He was maliciously spoken to. Um, rhetorical question, please don't answer. But if someone just uh, uh, insults you viciously, maliciously, uh, what is your first reaction? There is something inside of us when that comes in our ear gate that just goes all through us and, and justifiable retaliation is our first thought. Why, I didn't deserve that. And maybe in fact you didn't. I mean an awful lot of what we get we bring in ourselves. But, but maybe in fact you didn't. But neither did Jesus. And what was his response? When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. The close of this verse is critical to all of this. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Uh, for all you did to me, I'm going to do thus and so to you. Vengeance, come on, is mine. I will recompense, saith the Lord. Very difficult place for a man to take because we've been taught all of our lives we have our rights. I mentioned in the hearing of some of you in time past, some of you are familiar with a group called the Plymouth Brethren. They don't call themselves that. Uh, that was the title put on them because the organization began, the fellowship began in Plymouth, England before the turn of the century. And they have given us some grand Bible teachers over the years, A.W. Pink, Harry Ironside, uh, C.I. Schofield, one of the great links, J.M. Darby, one of the great list of them. But uh, I remember in one of their fellowships, I was uh, told, I don't know if I read it or was told it by one of them, but in any case, they were having a disciplinary meeting a couple of their members were at loggerheads with one another, and in the course of, <coughs> pardon me, in the course of the, uh, shall we say, adjudication that was going on there, this one individual who felt like he was being wrong cried out, I've got my rights. And one of these old brethren sitting there behind the, the elder's desk said, my dear brother, if you had your rights, you'd be in hell right now. Now, one of the lessons we need to learn from this is that we are in the world to discover the position that the Lord Jesus took in order that we might reign with him. If we suffer with him, we'll reign with him. Now that doesn't imply you're not going to make it to heaven if you don't suffer with him. Don't misunderstand that at all. The issue is reward and responsibility. 
But because Jesus took this place, if I am to learn the lessons of the nature of Christ, and Jesus said, be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. The word perfect there doesn't mean without flaw. It means to be mature, fully rounded. Uh, come to the end of, your, of God's purpose for you. Come to the maturity that was intended for you. And if we are indeed going to learn those lessons and come to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Jesus Christ, then we must take this route. For every time we resist the circumstances into which God has placed us, we back up one notch on God's purposes. Does that illustrate adequately? John said it twice, once in his epistle and secondly in, in the uh, Revelation. He said, Take heed unto thyself that you lose not those things which thou hast wrought, but that you receive a full reward. 2 John verse 8. Um, again in the Revelation in chapter 3. Take heed lest another man take thy crown. Best illustration of that is Saul. I, I kind of ran into a wee bit of an argument over this one time. You know, suggesting that Saul went to heaven. I'm absolutely convinced that Saul went to heaven. Um, uh, you recall, if I'm digressing here, but you recall when he went to the witch of Endor uh, because God wouldn't talk to him anymore. He had departed from him become his enemy. And many feel, well, if God became his enemy, well, then certainly he had to go to hell. No, no. Um, God became Israel, the nation's enemy as well, you remember. But they were still beloved for the covenant, say, the scripture says. Uh, that was a part of the chastening. In any case, Saul goes to the witch of Endor, calls, uh, uh, tells the witch of Endor, I want you to call me up uh, Samuel. And when Samuel showed up, terrified her, because she was used to dealing with demons. This time, a real thing showed up, and it absolutely terrified her. And she described who she saw, and Saul said, it is Samuel. And then the text, three times, not what the witch said, not what Saul said, but the inspired Holy Spirit-breathed text says, and Samuel said to Saul, this day you and your son will be with me. Now where was Samuel? In the paradise of God. So I'm quite convinced that Samuel, quote unquote, went to heaven. But now having said that, he lost his crown. You see? Because another, better than himself, came along. Samuel lost a Samuel. Who am I talking about? Saul. Saul, thank you. Saul lost his crown when he intruded into the priest's office and rejected divine authority and divine order. Uh, very often when the issue comes up, and I don't know that I'll get into it today, but very often when the issue comes up, well, I might, with regard to wives submitting themselves to her husband, there are some, particularly those who have been affected in our country today by the women's lib movement, feel like that somehow or another that's demeaning to women. Please let me emphasize to all of you, beloved, that it's not a matter of ability. I would quickly acknowledge that there are a lot of women who are a whole lot better Bible teachers than I. And some of them have written, uh, how you say, lessons, uh, uh, courses, yes. Some of them have written Bible courses. This is a Bible Study Fellowship, for example, superb course written by a woman. It isn't a matter of ability. It's a matter of order. If, for example, uh, my dad, who was a building contractor, he was an, engin an engineer, what do you call that, machinist, before he went into the building trade, but... Uh, for years he was a builder and, and he would hire good men. And I would observe this very often, particularly on one occasion when uh, he had one of my uncles, my mother's brother, had come down from Virginia and was working with him along with one other uh, uh, carpenter who happened to be our neighbor. Both of those men were equal to or more experienced than my father. But my father called the shot. It wasn't a matter of ability. It was a matter of order. 
You all see that. God has constituted an order. There is equality between the Father and the Son. But God has established an order. And the Son has willingly subjected himself to the Father. That divine order. All right, everything we're looking at here then is, a, is an issue of order. Servants, be submissive to your masters. Now, he had already told us that we're to honor all men. If we're to honor all men and these men are in servitude, then how do we honor those that are in servitude? Uh, come with me, please, to 1 Corinthians 7. I think this is an interesting text, particularly in the light of all that goes on in this world today. Nobody's ever content with where they are. I, I, I told some of you I was in a bookstore in, in uh, a Bible bookstore down there, and there was this, this uh, poster on the wall, and the poster was four cows, each divided by a fence that intersected at 90-degree angles. So the fence went this way, and then another fence crossed it. And there was a cow in this corner, and a cow in this corner, and now a cow in this corner, and a cow. And every one of those cows had his head through the fence, eating in the other corner. All the way around. <laughs> and I looked at that, and I thought, oh, what a parable. None of us is ever content with where we are. Someplace else is always, oh, if I were only, then I could serve God. If I were only, you can't be a blessing where you're not. Bloom where you're planted. That's the most classic of all posters that I've ever seen. Bloom where you're planted. All right, look at this in principle. Now, I realize we're not looking at it in interpretation, but we're looking at it in principle. 1 Corinthians 7, and I'll start for context, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> with verse 17. But as God has distributed to each one of us, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called being uncircumcised? Let him not become circumcised, because that was practiced in that time. Verse 19. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let each one, here's the verse, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. You couple 17 and 20 together, and God very simply says, you're in the world out of the divine hand. You recall Matthew chapter 25, you can turn to, to it or not if you wish, I'm not going to, I'm just going to cite it. Matthew 25, 15, and that's the parable of the talents. And he gave to one five, and another two, and another one. And then what's the next phrase? Each man according to his ability. Now, every one of us has an ability in the mind of God. Uh, we minister, according, Peter says, to the ability which God gives. So each one of us has from the Lord an ability. And we move within the sphere of that ability. To attempt to move outside of that sphere, we usually fall flat on our faces in the tempting to do so, but it is to say to the Lord, I don't like the way you made me. Uh, now, all of us need to excel within the sphere of our ability. We need to mature within the sphere of our ability. But to, uh, uh, you know, a crude illustration to be sure, but, but if, uh, if the pastor, let me use a different one because that has such an ambiguous meaning in our day. If the uh, prophet decides that he wants to be a teacher, then that can be a disaster. If the teacher decides he wants to be an evangelist, that can be a disaster. He said it would be, said could be. It is an unwillingness to remain in the position in which I'm called. And so what 
Peter is looking at in principle is, look, all of you are where you are out of the divine economy. And for you to resist where you are and to rebel against those that are over you is to rebel against God. Certainly, uh, the, uh, the Judo-Christian ethic wants to see men uh, outside of the sphere of persecution. And what's the, I want another word there. Uh, sorry, I lost the word I'm asking. Not persecution, but uh, brutality. All right. Uh, the Judo-Christian ethic wants to see every man outside of the sphere, unafflicted by brutality. And uh, certainly there is an injunction against masters. We're going to come to that momentarily. And Paul in Ephesians makes some interesting comments. But nonetheless, it is the uh, order of God that has brought about the kind of servitudes that are often visited upon peoples and nations. I'm kind of treading on eggs here. I think I need to quit. Uh, remember the uh, order that God set down when Noah came out of the ark? Hmm? I know this has been, how shall you say, uh, by humanistic thinking cried out against, but it's nonetheless there, and it was thus in the scriptures, uh, thus in history. When Noah came out of the ark, you remember he got drunk. I'm convinced he didn't know he could get drunk. Things didn't ferment prior to the flood. After the flood, we have a totally different atmospheric condition. And when he started drinking all that grape juice, he said, boy, this never tasted like this before. And he didn't quit, and he got drunk. Uh, fermentation is a dying process. And, and fermentation, while it took place prior to the flood, took hundreds of years, just as it took hundreds of years for men to die. But after he came out of the ark, it happened in short order, and, and he was reaping the benefits of that as he was drinking the fruit of his labor, and he got stoned. And his, his uh, son Ham comes in, sees him in his uh, nakedness and his debauched situation, goes out and makes light of him to his brother. And that provoked. And his brothers, you remember, came in and covered him up with their uh, backwards so that they would not see his nakedness. And, and uh, that provoked a prophecy uh, from Noah, which doubtless the Lord gave, as it's so recorded in inspired writ. I will enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tent of Shem, will be a servant. Canaan, he said, will be a servant. It was the generations of Ham that he was addressing. And, of course, that prophecy focused particularly on the land of Canaan, that ultimately the children of Israel uh, would possess. But its broader reach addresses the Japhetic nations, the Semitic nations, and the Hamitic nations. And he said, first of all, you'll dwell in the tent of Shem. There are two things implied there. The first one is that spiritual blessing is going to come through the line of Shem, the tent of Shem, the tabernacle of Shem, if you would. Spiritual blessing is going to come through the tent of Shem. There's something that's a little more than that in it, uh, I think all of West Texas is dwelling in Shem's tent. You ever heard of Levi Strauss? <laughs> By the same token, the Arabs are Semitic, you'll remember. Now, through Isaac thy, shall thy seed be called, but the Arabs are Semitic. And the whole world right now is, in a very real sense, dwelling in the Arabs' tent because of the oil uh, uh, situation, of course. Well, I feel a bunny path there, and i got to let that alone. The Japhetic nations, on the other hand, in that prophecy, were promised to rule the world, and so they have. The kingdom of Rome, of course, was the apex of that. But from the time that Israel was carried captive uh, in the hands of the Babylonians, the Japhetic nations have ruled the world. 
they've hold, held dominance over the greater part of the world. And so it is to this present hour. And with all of that, the Hamitic nations, what we call today the third world nations, have been under subservience as nations, economically and otherwise, to those other two. Now that prophecy came to pass precisely as God pronounced it. Now, since I've said that, I'm going to put a parenthesis in here, which I think is vitally important. Uh, remember that Jesus said, and the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Well, let's look at that, uh, to me very interestingly, uh, with regard to the gospel. When the gospel began to be preached, remember who's last now, Ham is last, right? When the gospel began to be preached, and Jesus gave to Peter the keys to open the gospel uh, to, the, to, first of all, the Jews, and then ultimately to the Gentiles, while he was not the apostle to the Gentiles, he nonetheless had the keys to that kingdom. He opened that gospel to the Gentiles. We have it in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, you'll recall, uh, the gospel was being preached in Samaria, and Peter was making declaration, and Philip was taken out of Samaria and brought down to Gaza to preach to who? An Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, he was treasurer to Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Third world, Hamitic nation. And he was the first one. Now, it's to the Jew first, and on the day of Pentecost, the gospel was preached to the Jew. But I want you to watch this singular order. That gospel is now open, first of all, to this Hamitic individual who goes back to his own nation. And by the way, there's an interesting, I'm, I'm digressing here, yes, but let me do this quickly. Uh, that he goes down to his own nation and begins to minister that gospel. And it's interesting to me that when the Apostle Paul writes to um, the church at Rome, he makes reference to Rufus. You recall that? And when Mark writes his, Mark's gospel is Mark's epistle to the church at Rome. That's what occasioned the writing of that uh, gospel. It's Mark's epistle to the church at Rome. And Mark, you'll recall, when he's addressing the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, he refers to, to uh, uh, Simon of Cyrene, that's North Africa, uh, who was compelled to carry the cross. Mark makes an interesting statement because he's writing to the church at Rome. He's saying this Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Isn't that interesting? You know, it may very well be that that the, this, this uh, message of the gospel was carried not only by the Ethiopian, but also by Simon of Cyrene back into North Africa. And, and these two sons of Simon could well have moved to Rome and started the church at Rome because certainly uh, Peter, as far as we know, historically never did go to Rome. And Paul certainly had not yet come to Rome when he wrote his epistle. So it's very possible that those two guys started the church at Rome. Interesting to see how the gospel uh, is that fruit whose seed is in itself. Just in other words, bears fruit wherever it goes. So first of all, the gospel came to Ham. And the last is first. And the first is going to be last. In chapter 9 of Acts, that's chapter 8 of Acts, now remember. In chapter 9 of Acts, who gets converted? The Apostle Paul. Hmm? So it's first Ham, and then Shem. He's always in the middle. And then, in chapter 10 of Acts, Peter is praying, you'll recall, because he's hungry. He's up there on the rooftop praying, waiting for lunch. And there suddenly comes down a job of this, what do you call it? Sheep, thank you. Uh, full of all manner of unclean beasts and creepy things. The Lord said, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, Not so, Lord. I've said before, I'll say it again here. When you say not so, never say Lord. Arise, Peter, kill and eat. Not so, Lord. Nothing common or unclean has ever entered into my mouth. What I've cleansed, God said. That call thou not common or unclean. I'll get down. There's a couple of men looking for you. 
And these two guys had come. They were Romans, remember? They'd come from Cornelius' house. And they invite Peter. They stay overnight. Peter goes to Cornelius' house, preaches the gospel to Cornelius, a Roman, a Japhetic, who rules the world. And while he yet spake, the Holy Spirit fell on them, Peter said, as on us at the beginning. So the first was last. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that God in that very simple order testifies to us that in the body of Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian, Scythian, bond, free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. All right. So, uh, I didn't uh, read on as far as I uh, might have, but in 1 Timothy, uh, verse 18 again, Be submissive to your own masters, you servants, with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endured grief, suffering wrongfully. There's Jesus. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer for it and take it patiently, this is commendable before God. You'll notice, please, uh, in verse 24, the last phrase, By whose stripes you were healed. Now, I recognize that that passage as it was originally uh, stated in, in uh, Isaiah and quoted then again concerning the Lord Jesus, addresses physical healing. But that's not the context here. When he addresses it here, by whose stripes you were healed, it harkens back to verse 20. If you are beaten for your fault, what profits in that? But if you're beaten for doing good and you take it patiently, you are identified in the stripes of the Lord Jesus. And there's a very real sense. Uh, Paul said, I fill up in my body that which is left behind of the afflictions of Christ for his body's sake. There's a very real sense that those who suffer uh, wrongfully for doing good are bearing in their body a suffering for the whole of the body of Christ. When one member of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. You can evidence that by your own experimentation, if you wish to do so, uh, drop the next time you're ironing, ladies or men, the next time you're working on your car, take a wrench or an iron or whatever and drop it on your big toe and see if you don't feel it in all your body. Whatever one member of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. I mean, you can get a terrible headache out of a smashed big toe. So that the, the principle that God is setting down in, you're bearing this for Jesus' sake for the whole body. And I think that's the most remarkable statement Paul made uh, when he said, I fill up in my body that which is left behind of the afflictions of Christ for his body's sake. If he suffered, we suffer also. And there's a very real sense in which that fills up the cup of iniquity for the world. And we've talked about this. And it establishes the basis of their judgment in that day. All right, going on with this, please. Uh, to verse... Uh, well, I Verse uh, 21 again. For to this you were also called, because Christ suffered for us or for you, leaving you an example you should follow his death. Now move on down, please, to verse uh, 1 of chapter 3. Wives then. Okay, servants, you obey your masters. Wives then, likewise, be submissive to your own husband, uh, that even if some do not obey the word, they without the word may be won by the conduct of, uh, of the wives. A number of years ago, and some of you here perhaps had similar experiences if you were in a teaching capacity, but a lady came to me 
after a Bible class in Austin a number of years ago, and she said, well, she said, my husband uh, just simply is not spiritual, and uh, he doesn't know the direction of the Lord, and so I have to make those choices for him. And I thought to myself, my dear sister, one, I wonder if one of the reasons that he is not submissive to the Lord is that you won't let him because you're doing it for him. And there was a kind of harshness and bitterness in, in the way she was saying that. And I, and, and I was forced to think of this passage. And so, of course, obviously, I made quick reference to it in her behalf. That they might be won by the conduct of the wives when they observe your chaste conduct coupled with fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward adorning, the braiding of the hair, wearing of gold, putting on a fine apparel. Rather, be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of the Lord. Now, I want to note to you here, this text is not saying women shouldn't talk. And I want to digress, and I know I'm meddling when I do this, but I'm going to digress. Many have taken the first Corinthian epistle, and the Apostle Paul says, I uh, would that your women keep silence in the church that's not permitted unto them to speak, as also saith the law. Now, if you don't have a problem, you don't apply the cure. The problem in the Corinthian church was, that the women were behaving themselves consistent with the culture of the city of Corinth, which was an abominable place. As a matter of fact, if you want to insult somebody in those days, you call them a Corinthian. If you want to insult somebody in Israel, you call him a Nazarene. Uh, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You will remember the words of Nathaniel. If you want to insult somebody in Israel, you call him a Nazarene. But if you want to insult somebody in Greek culture, you call him a Corinthian. But because Corinth was a debauched place. And, and women were... Uh, contributors to that debauchery to a great extent. And so Paul is setting down an order because that was brought into the Corinthian church. And Paul said, now, in, in other words, to the Corinthian women, if you can't do it right, you can't do it at all. But you will remember in that same epistle, he was setting down the order for women to prophesy in the assembly. Now, why would he set down an order for women to prophesy in the assembly if they were not permitted in the church of Jesus Christ as a whole to speak? Because he was correcting a problem in the Corinthian assembly. And if you don't have the problem, you don't apply the correction. And so there's no implication at all, here or in any other text. It is a meek and a quiet spirit, which is in the sight of the Lord a great price. Uh, Paul refers to that in 1 Timothy uh, 2, and we'll have occasion to address that just momentarily. So that it, it is the meek and the quiet spirit. And quickly, I want to make uh, uh, extrapolate, as they say on this a moment. Uh, if you are a computer genius, you use that term. I don't come across very much. Verse 4. Rather let it be the hidden person of the heart. Hidden man of the heart, I think, is the way the King James reads. With the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit. The hidden man of the heart, or hidden person of the heart, is the spirit of the man. The word hidden is the Greek word kryptos. Those of you who have been in the military will remember cryptology or cryptograph. It was the... It was the uh, a decoding room. Cryptos uh, is secret. And Paul, or Peter rather says it's the secret man which is the spirit of the man, that hidden man of the heart. It's the holiest of all within the man. Now that term is in contrast to Paul's usage in Romans chapter 7 and verse 22 where he refers to the soul as the inward man and in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where he refers to the body as the outward man. As a matter of fact, in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, he uses both those terms. The inward man is renewed day by day, but the outward man perishing, yes, dying, perishing. 
The inward man is the soul, the outward man is the body, but the hidden man, the secret man, is the spirit of the man. And Paul is, uh, Peter rather, I'm sorry, is saying, wives, cultivate in your spirit that kind of attitude that manifests the character of Jesus Christ, not self-asserting. Somebody says, well, Jesus was very self-asserting. I mean, he went in there and, and whipped those people that were money changers in the temple and so on and so forth. No, no. Make this distinction in your thinking. Jesus was never self-asserting. He was always father-asserting. Yes. God-asserting. Everything that Jesus did, matter of fact, uh, Fount mentioned the verse again Sunday morning. Whatsoever things I see the Father do, those things I do, Jesus said. Whatsoever things I hear the Father speak, those things I speak. Jesus never acted independent of the Father, but always with the Father's purpose in mind. And if each one of these that are mentioned here, servants, wives, husbands, act with the Father in mind, not maintaining our honor, but rather the honor of God, all goes well. It is the very moment that I want to maintain my honor and my dignity that all falls apart. Jesus, when he went to the cross, lost all honor and all dignity. Boy, did he ever lose dignity. The uh, say, portrayals of the cross are always modest as to what they might have been. Jesus Christ hung naked on that cross, and all dignity and all modesty and all honor was lost in that moment.